And uh, I just, I love coaching them. We told them before the game, like, this game is about competition. And you're going to be, there's going to be a bunch of one-on-one battles all over the field. And we got to win our share. And they did. Spencer Rattler, unbelievable. So happy for him. What a moment there in Columbia, South Carolina for Shane Beamer and for all the Gamecock Nation. Just an incredible performance. We'll get to it in just a minute. Just how incredible it was, how unprecedented it was. Uh, I'm not sure the final score even does it justice. Just the absolute demolition of previously fifth-ranked Tennessee. Welcome to Always College Football. Today is Monday, November 21st. We hope you're enjoying the show wherever it is you're getting the show. Whether it's on the YouTube channel or if it's here with us on the podcast, we really appreciate it. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out, and it helps the show out. We hope that wherever your travels may take you this week, whether you're spending time with friends and family, whether you're going to be watching football and consuming football tomorrow and on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday, what a week we have if you love football. This is probably one of the best weeks of the year even though we don't have a game on Wednesday, even though I wish we did. (laughs) But one of the best weeks of the year, so we have a ton of great content coming for you this week. We will have Eli Manning join the show to help preview and promote the Egg Bowl that's coming up on Thanksgiving. So we have a great week coming up for you, even though it's Thanksgiving week, even though it's a holiday week, still keep it locked in here on Always College Football. I told you that this weekend, look, I'm, We don't get everything right, okay? Like, far from it. We do the best we can to be as fact-based as we can without throwing, you know, flaming hot takes against the wall. It's not really our style. But one thing that we've tried to do is is we've tried to be very mindful of when we've been right and when we've been wrong. We've been wrong several times. We've noted it. We have also been right on a few different occasions as well. This week, we nailed it. Take a look. So I think that this is one of those weeks where it doesn't feel like it's going to be very chaotic, but don't be surprised if we have a very surprising result or two or three, maybe four, come Sunday morning. Well, as you can see, it was a weird weekend. It was a wild weekend. We thought that it would be a potential hangover, so to speak, for several teams. We thought there'd be a situation in which we could look and maybe kind of find some teams that are looking ahead. Not surprised at all by some of the outcomes that we saw this past week, including a couple of close calls, four to be exact, amongst teams ranked in the top four. An incredible, incredible game that was back and forth out in Los Angeles, California, and a couple of notable victories that we're going to get to throughout the course of the show. There's one or two that you're probably going to be like, why are they talking about that? We don't get that many opportunities to praise Vanderbilt. So we're going to take that opportunity. All right. You're going to have to stick around for that. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into some of these breakdowns. Let's talk about it. All right. We told you it was going to be wild. So let's just talk about how wild this week was. All right. Teams ranked one through four. Okay. We all know that Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and obviously TCU, they all won. Okay, that's the 15th time in the college football playoff era in which the top four all won. So that's somewhat rare. But the margin of victory was the slimmest that it's ever been, and it wasn't even close, y'all. They were a combined, combined plus 26 when it comes to points differential. 
That's pretty wild. And you think about this too. Georgia won by 10. Okay. Then it wasn't a pretty performance by any stretch. Ohio State won by 13, but really it was a six point game until the very end. So the 26 point margin was by far the slimmest margin ever. And yet it could have been much slimmer. The next closest margin was in 2017. That was week 10. It was plus 46 for teams ranked one through four. So 20 points closer this weekend than it's ever been in the college football playoff era. But that's for the top four. What about the team that was ranked number five? Tennessee. My goodness, what happened? I know that this team had been struggling on defense at times, but there have also been some performances this year by Tennessee's defense in which you're sitting there thinking, man, all right, this group's pretty good. I mean, they can get after you a little bit. They'll do some blitzins. They'll do some movement stuff. I think they can make life somewhat difficult on opposing teams, especially along the front. That wasn't the case this past weekend. Tennessee's secondary got absolutely torched. Torched from start to finish. And Spencer Rattler, man, thinking about what he was all season long, and I don't think that many people have paid real close attention to Spencer Rattler, but y'all, he hasn't been very good. I mean, it's as simple as that. He's missed a lot of throws. He hasn't really been super accurate. Hasn't been super decisive. He doesn't really look anything like the guy that was supposed to be the face of college football heading into the 2021 season. However, if you look at what he did over the course of four quarters against Tennessee, he reminded everybody that it's not for a lack of talent. This dude was on fire. Okay. 30 of 37. 438 and six touchdowns coming into the season or coming into the game on the season. He had only had eight touchdowns. That's right. So he basically had an entire season in one night against the number five ranked team in the country. Remarkable performance. Absolutely remarkable performance. Think about this. South Carolina came into this game averaging 20.7 points per game in SEC play. Less than three touchdowns scored a game. Well, they just hung 63. That is wild. The 63 points scored were the most by an unranked team against an AP top five team in the poll era. So the best offensive performance ever by an unranked team against a top five team. Pretty dang remarkable, to say the least. Our thoughts go out to Hendon Hooker, who has been just a treat to cover and a joy to watch all season long. He, of course, went down late in this game with that non-contact knee injury to his left knee. He's doing that speed option, just planted, and it kind of gave way. Just thinking about him, if for whatever reason that's the last we've seen of Hendon Hooker this year, know that his season will not be forgotten. Not by me, not by Tennessee fans, not by college football fans. He has been a joy to watch and cover. And I just am praying for good news, praying for a positive prognosis. And if for whatever reason that positive prognosis doesn't come through, praying for a speedy recovery. Uh, and I think he's going to have a very bright future. The good news is, fingers crossed, if it's, say, an ACL, if it's, say, an MCL, whatever it ends up being in that left knee, We've seen people come back from that, and we've seen guys go on to have very long and lucrative careers. So very, very hopeful and optimistic that that will be the case for Hendon Hooker as well. More on South Carolina just for a moment. 
Remember, this is a team that lost to Florida 38-6 last week. Okay, so just keep things in mind here. Shane Beamer now has recorded his first win against a top five team. You realize that his dad had one win in his whole career. One win in his career against AP top five teams. Frank Beamer, one in 21 in his career against AP top five teams. Well, Shane Beamer's been a head coach for a little under two years now. He already has matched his pops with wins against top five teams. Tremendous performance from South Carolina. A place was rocking. It's great to see Williams Bryce come alive like that. They made it very difficult on Tennessee, and they had the goods from start to finish. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal offensive output. And I, I can't say I'm crazy surprised that, that South Carolina made it interesting. I can't say I'm crazy surprised that they, uh, they pulled off what was a stunning upset. I am surprised that they scored 63, and I'm surprised it looked the way it looked. I really am. I am very, very surprised by that. Uh, Tennessee, still much, much to play for, still a lot on the table, still probably going to be ranked in the top six or seven. I don't think they're going to fall much, by the way. Maybe they fall to six. Maybe they fall to seven. Will they still be in front of LSU? Same amount of losses, have the head-to-head. -head. I think they probably will be. They might only fall one spot, so it'll be interesting to see exactly where they end up. But ultimately, playoff hopes have officially been dashed for the Tennessee Volunteers. All right, moving on to a couple of Big Ten thrillers. We'll talk about these teams in unison, okay? Michigan, Illinois, and then Ohio State, which followed it on ABC. There is a seven-hour window there on ABC for Michigan and Ohio State. Both were very, very sloppy in their performances. Let's start with Michigan because that's in chronological order. So Ohio State fans, don't get upset. I'm just going to start with the noon game, okay? Blake Corum, great early on, right? 100 yards in the first half, 100 plus in the first half. But obviously that injury completely changed everything. Now I know he's going to try to come back. I'm sure he's going to push through it. He's going to be attacking the rehab hard this week. But if for whatever reason he is unavailable, man, that is bad news for the Michigan Wolverines. If you look at what they were offensively after he went out, yards per play with Blake Corm in the game, 6.7. Well, after he went out, 3.8. Yards per rush, nearly 6 at 5.9. Yards per rush, well, when he went out, 2.4. I'm telling you, man, if there's ever been an argument made on behalf of an injured player for the Heisman Trophy, this might be the argument that you would use. Because if you look at just how stagnant that offense became with him on the sideline, tells you all you need to know about Blake Corum's value and importance to this Michigan football team. Of course, too, hey, Donovan Edwards as well. These guys are the straw that stirs the drink, and they better be at 100% or at least as close as they can get them to 100% if they're going to pull off the upset next week against the Ohio State Buckeyes. Because right now, I'm not convinced that J.J. McCarthy can throw the balls down the field and complete the passes down the field that are going to be needed of him in order for them to pull off the upset. They're going to have to be great off play action. Those Ohio State safeties get a little nosy. They'll get a little greedy. And you could throw it over their heads. So what do you want to do? You need a quarterback that can drive the ball down the field. I am not convinced at this point that's where J.J. McCarthy is. Anything underneath, he's great. 17 of 25 on throws that traveled 10 yards or less against Illinois. 
at 7.4 yards per attempt. Very solid, very efficient on the underneath passing game. However, when you start to stretch the field, he went just one of nine. That is not good enough. It's not. And he left some plays on the field. I can think of one in particular rolling to his right. He could have won the game. Instead, he checks it down to his back. The back ended up actually dropping it. But he had his receiver in the front of the end zone wide open with six, seven yards of separation. He never even saw him. That was a Laffer touchdown. You got to take advantage of that. I don't think he used great. I didn't think he read the field great on Saturday, and I thought he missed some throws that he's going to have to make next week. So either way, going to be watching the running back situation very, very close for the Michigan Wolverines. Hey, credit to Illinois' defense. That's a great defensive front, especially a defensive tackle. They hung in there. I thought they played really well, and I don't blame Brett Bielema whatsoever for being beside himself with some of the no calls that Probably could have gone his way. The fourth down to the left, in which he wanted pass interference on the offense, I completely agree with him. It was a pick play. It was a rub play. It's one that you use fairly regularly. But the receiver was engaged with the defender as the Michigan wide receiver broke to the out. And that, that can't happen. I mean, it's got to be OPI. They missed it. So either way, those things happen. Brett Bielema. He knows as well as anybody, you can't leave it up to the officials. So you got to win the game outright on your own. Ultimately, got to give credit where credit is due. Michigan, even though they might have gotten away with one or two, they made the kicks and they made the plays necessary down the stretch to ultimately win the football game. And extra credit too to their defense for getting the three and out there at really the got to have it moment of the game in order to set their offense up with an opportunity to kick the game-winning field goal. So a good, solid survival game from Michigan. Now they look ahead next week, hoping to get healthy for the big one against Ohio State. Let's talk briefly about Ohio State. Very surprised there in the early going. If you look at how that game played out, Maryland was really the more physical football team in the first 30 minutes of that game. Now, I'm not sure what Ryan Day said at halftime. I'm not sure what was said to the offensive line. I'm not sure what was said to Dallin Hayden, the running back. I'm not sure what was said to the defense. I don't know what Ryan Day said. Maybe it was like Space Jam and they drank the magic juice. And next thing you know, they were a completely different team. But I'm telling you, man, if you look at that Ohio State team in the first 30 minutes compared to the team that I saw there in the third quarter, it was night and day difference. As far as just how physical they were, how imposing they were along the line of scrimmage offensively, how Dallin Hayden was able to really, I mean, we talk so much about his performance and he was great, man. I mean, Dallin Hayden was tremendous. What he finished with, uh, like 146 yards on 27 carries, three touchdowns. Yeah, it was this great day. But you really look at some of those carries there in the third quarter, man, he was untouched until he was five, six, seven yards downfield. He was untouched on touchdown runs inside the red zone. I mean, they did a great job along the front there in the third quarter of that football game. That's the Ohio State team that I expect to see all the time. Unfortunately, we don't get it all the time. I just wish we would. I do think the passing attack, for whatever reason, was a little bit off on Saturday. If you look at C.J. Stroud, missed a couple throws he wouldn't normally miss. And I thought that the receivers didn't get Great separation against quality corners that Maryland has on the outside. Solid secondary that Maryland has. And I thought they were up to the challenge, probably better than most teams this year when facing off against the Buckeyes. Ultimately, I thought Talia Tungavailoa 
did a really good job of giving his team a chance, but the pass rush at the very end finally got home. I think he got sacked five or six times, and that was ultimately a big difference in the game. But man, Maryland, very impressed with their wide receivers, very impressed with their backs. I thought they had a really good plan, both offensively and defensively, but Ohio State weathered the storm enough and survived at the very end by making pivotal plays on both offense and on defense. Sets up, like I said, a thrilling game next week that we will have lots of time to break down. I promise you. Might have our most lengthy breakdown of the year when it comes to Ohio State and Michigan. So stay tuned for that a little later in the week. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. As we navigate like Lois and Clark from east to west, we're from College Park, Maryland. Now let's found our, find our way down to Fort Worth or Waco, more specifically where the game took place. How about TCU, man? The cardiac kids. I, I, if you're a TCU fan, how are you still alive? Like I would need to go to the doctor. I mean, I really would. I mean, this team now continues to just find fascinating ways to win football games, and they did it again against a really really solid Baylor performance, man. That was a good, Baylor played well. I mean, Baylor played well and had the chance to pull off the upset and TCU just continues to find a way. They are now 5-0 and when trailing at any point in the second half. I mean, that is a ridiculous stat. Absolutely ridiculous stat. The only team that I can remember kind of just continuing to find a way to win, even though it's never really pretty, was the 2014 Florida State-led team by Jameis Winston. It's like they'd get in these big deficits early, and Jameis would pull off some miracles en route to finally being 13-0. They did get their teeth kicked in by Oregon in the college football playoff. But either way, man, TCU just continues to find a way. And Max Duggan, man, this dude, we've, we've had him on our radar all season long. He has been tremendous. I mean, not just with his arm, but also with his legs, had 50 yards rushing, did a great job of extending some plays, keeping the defense honest, very accurate, took some chances downfield. But I think just his composure in a two-minute drill situation, when they got the ball back, I'll ask you guys this. When they got the ball back on the minus 31, the minus 31 meaning the TCU 31, when they got the ball back with 90-plus seconds left, was there ever a doubt in your mind that he would – navigate them down the field. I mean, even without Kendry Miller, even without Quentin Johnson, two of his best playmakers at both running back and wide receiver respectively, was there ever a doubt that Max Duggan was going to get TCU within striking distance 
and winning that two-minute drill and giving this kicker a chance. There was never a doubt in my mind. I mean, I put it on. I was like, all right, here we go. Not, not saying I have the same confidence in Mac Duggan as I do like a Tom Brady in a two-minute drill operation, but pretty close <laughs> at the college level. That's for sure, man. Just so efficient, so composed. I know Max Duggan hasn't had as big a platform as far as viewers are concerned as it relates to CJ Stroud or Blake Corum or you know some of the aforementioned Heisman Trophy candidates. I get that. Um, but you better start paying attention. I mean, this kid has been great all season long and has continued to fight over and over and over again. He always gives his team a chance. And let's also do a little bit of love for the Hurricane field goal operation as well, too. Now, everyone kind of has maybe a little bit of a different, I, I guess, word for it. Some people might call it the hurry-up field goal. Some people might call it a mayday field goal. Whatever it is, we called it hurricane field goal. That was always what it was, probably because hurricane, H-U-R-R, same thing as hurry, H-U-R-R, probably some type of, I don't know, we always had words for things like that. But hurricane field goal, it was perfectly executed. And how about the credit to Griffin Kell as well, who just drained it. I mean, just drew that thing in there beautifully, started it at the right upright and ended right down the middle. Perfect kick. But I think what was most impressive, if you go back and you actually watch the highlight and the operation of that hurricane field goal, most kickers, and when I say most, I mean literally 99.8% of kickers would need to step it off. So you see kickers, they, they give the mark to the holder. The holder puts his finger down, puts his finger down, and that's the mark. And the kicker is going to take three steps back and then two steps wide and get set up. He has a pre-kick routine. Most kickers do. It's like a golfer. You have a pre-shot routine, practice swing, look through. Kickers are creatures of habit, and oftentimes kickers are crazy. Don't ask me. Ask anybody that's ever been around a kicker. They're all nuts. They're like goalies in hockey. All right? So when you sit there and you see the kicker just run out there and not take his steps but just stand and kind of guess and say, all right, I think this is probably about right. And he just stands there and you watch Griffin Kell as he takes the field. He just stands there, doesn't take his steps and boom, calmly right down the middle. Tons of love for Griffin Kell, man. Tons of love because he's the only kicker I've ever seen, even in a hurricane field goal operation. He's the only kicker I've ever seen that didn't step off the kick. Tons of love for him with that. Be a feel guy. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was awesome, man. Congrats, TCU. Continue to find ways to get it done. We'll talk about them here in a little bit about how this might impact their playoff chances. I think TCU is in really good shape. I shouldn't have to tell you that. Speaking of being in pretty good shape, well, USC now finds themselves in a really nice spot as it relates to the college football playoff, man. I told you last week, I thought USC was in full control of their own destiny. I know Tennessee fans didn't agree with that. They pointed to the fact that SC didn't have any good wins and all these other things. That's fine. Now that Tennessee has lost a game, there really is no argument to be made. USC is in prime position to get into the college football playoff for Lincoln Riley. It'd just be amazing. What a story and what a turnaround there from four and eight last year to now being 10 and one with Notre Dame coming to your house and a chance to potentially punch your ticket into the postseason. Just a phenomenal turnaround there for Lincoln Riley. But this was about 
Caleb Williams. I know many people will continue to point to the fact that Caleb Williams has been doing this all year. I know. <laughs> I've been watching. He's awesome, man. He's so fun to watch. And I actually thought this was probably his best game he's played in a month uh, against quality competition, right? I mean, this is it's one thing to go out and steamroll Colorado. It's another thing to go out and, and play against a team like UCLA, whose Super Bowl was this week, making it about SC at their place. And hey, say what you want about the Rose Bowl, but I watched the game. I listened to Joel and Gus. I thought sounded pretty dang jacked up. I thought it sounded loud. I thought it sounded like it was somewhat of a hostile environment, more so than most UCLA games I watch. So he went into enemy territory and got the job done. He was accurate. He was poised. He extended plays, and he accounted for 503 total yards. Now, I'm not going to be one that's going to sit here and have this massive overreaction like I've seen so many writers do. It's like, well, whoa, now we have a new Heisman frontrunner. Well, have you been watching all season? Like, I mean, this is not new for Caleb Williams, but this performance is what now justifies him being at the top of your list. Like, look at the bigger picture, man. The guy's been great all year. Outside of the game against Oregon State, and maybe a game or two here and there where he didn't have his best stuff, he's been very steady and has looked the part all season long. I also want to tip my cap. This was not a game if you like defense, okay? This is not a game that you wanted to see yards earned. This felt like a track meet from start to finish. There's no denying that. All right. It definitely felt like a track meet. Even Joel at the very end said, you punt, you lose. All right. I, you know, I, I, I kind of understood what he was saying there too, because it did feel a little bit more like that uh, than, than anything else. Like, man, the first team to break serve is going to lose this game. That's what it really felt like. But when I saw the ball get kicked back to DTR. I thought without a shadow of a doubt, UCLA was going to go down. They were going to win it. I did. I, I thought for sure that was what was going to happen. But how about USC's defense? This team continues to bend. They continue to bend and they bend a lot, <laughs> but they also make some plays of their own, man. How about the turnovers forced in this game? They continue to be the best in college football when it comes to forcing turnovers and keeping a clean sheet themselves. Now, Caleb Williams did have an interception in the game, but either way, we're talking about a plus three turnover margin in a critical game like this. It's amazing. Just continues to happen week in, week out for USC, and their defense was ultimately the, the side of the ball that won the game. And Corey Foreman dropping back in coverage from his defensive end spot and intercepting that pass on a nice disguise, that was the difference maker. So credit to Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator, him continuing to find unique looks and continue to confuse opposing passers because, man, I've never seen teams throw into traffic as often as teams do when they play against the USC Trojans. So congrats to USC. What a great win. Just a great win. But don't celebrate too long because a very hot Notre Dame Fighting Irish team is coming to town next week, and that's going to be a four-quarter battle knowing what Notre Dame has done since week three. Moving over to the game that followed that one. This was a late night, I think, for most of you, especially if you were like me, you were on the East Coast. I'm watching this game. It's like one o'clock and my eyes are about like this. But I stood I stood in there firm in the pocket and just tried to survive. But I did, man. It was a late one. But Oregon gets a big win against Utah. What a great performance. Just a great performance from Oregon's defense, man. Three interceptions. Look, more on Cam Rising in a moment. 
But this felt like a game where Oregon really had to win it with that side of the football. You could tell Bo Nix was at less than 100%. He didn't have his usual mobility. So they had to rely almost exclusively on quick passes and to get the ball out of his hands and all these other things. So you felt from really the start of the game, it was going to be about the Oregon defense. They were going to have to play great, and they did. They were phenomenal. They made Cam Rising very uncomfortable. Cam was often running for his life, but there was never really very few situations which there wasn't a Oregon Ducks player that was close in pursuit. I thought they had a good plan defensively, so credit to Dan Lanning and his staff for putting a nice plan together to disrupt the rhythm of what has usually been a fairly consistent and dependable group on Utah's offense. So I also think, too, Utah's, they're underwhelming at wide receiver, and Oregon was able to take advantage of that. They had a couple drops in the game. There were some missed opportunities. I'm sure Utah's kicking themselves with how they played in the first half of that football game. But either way, man, so much credit to Oregon. They now find themselves just one win away from the Pac-12 championship game where they might have a chance to knock off a playoff-seeking USC Trojans football team. Starting your own small business can be a total roller coaster. Between all those bumpy twists and turns comes the actual business side of your business, which can really throw you for a loop. Luckily, with QuickBooks, you can manage your business with confidence from the start. So no matter how bumpy the ride gets, you can always stay on track. New business, no problem. Success starts with Intuit QuickBooks. Learn more at quickbooks.com. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results. Fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. All right, a Monday staple. It's time to turn our attention to some low-hanging fruit. Coops, what do you got? All right, first one here. North Carolina's loss to Georgia Tech will hurt Clemson's chances of getting into the CFP. Yes, it crushes Clemson. Tell me this, now that North Carolina lost this week, they might very well respond and and dominate an NC State team, but NC State just lost badly. So how high in the rankings can North Carolina possibly be? 20th, maybe? I'm not really even sure. They might be below that. They might be unranked. I don't think that's likely, but it's possible, I suppose. Because North Carolina doesn't really have a convincing victory either. So everyone seems to think that, well, the loss to Tennessee is going to now open the door for Clemson to potentially backdoor their way into the college football playoff. Man, I don't see that at all. Want to know why? Because I think the loser of Ohio State, Michigan, will remain ahead of Clemson. Bama right now is ahead of Clemson. I don't think Bama has any chance of getting in. Tennessee, how far are they going to fall? You really think Tennessee is going to fall behind Clemson? No. No. Not with wins against 
team that was ranked sixth last week and a team that was ranked uh, eighth last week. So how far is Tennessee going to fall? Not not to the point in which they're behind Clemson, I don't think, at least. So I don't think Clemson has any shot at the playoff. Uh, barring something completely unforeseen, I think there will be one-loss runners-up a la Michigan, a la Ohio State, potentially. Even if TCU were to lose, I think they'd remain ahead of Clemson at this point. So I think right now, Clemson, I think the best they can probably do is the Orange Bowl. Uh, now, outside shot, the chaos completely, completely takes over. Sure, there's always a chance of that. But I find that extremely hard to believe. So I think Clemson, uh, they kind of made their bed when they lost by several touchdowns a couple weeks ago against what was a quality Notre Dame team, but they weren't even competitive in the matchup. So I think that will be held against them throughout the course of their evaluation. All right. You already hinted at this next one, but the loser of Michigan, Ohio state will still make the playoffs low hanging fruit or truth. It's not truth yet, but it's possible. I think it depends much more on what things look like in the loss. Is it close? Is it competitive? Because if it's completely one-sided, a la a, you know, a two-touchdown, three-touchdown performance in favor of, say, Ohio State, then it's going to be difficult, I think, to justify keeping Michigan around. But it's also a little bit too, man. You got to start to measure. People are going to freak out. I'm telling you, people will freak out and they're going to say SEC biased here in a couple of days. Get ready for it. I can already hear Danny Cannell typing out his Twitter. It's going to be an overreaction because Tennessee is not going to fall very far. They were at number five last week. Y'all, they might not even really move. I mean, they, they could, in theory, fall to number six. And that might be as low as they fall. And they're going to say, well, they just lost and gave up 63 points. How can you continue to keep Tennessee up there? Because they beat the team that's number seven. And they beat them convincingly by 27 points. They also beat the team that's number eight. So Tennessee has, you got to keep them ahead of both Bama and you got to keep them ahead of LSU. So people are going to freak out. Get ready. Tennessee's going to drop from five to six. And I, I think that people are going to have a strong reaction to that. Can Clemson potentially jump after holding Miami to 98 yards of, of, of total offense? Perhaps, but probably not because it's not like anybody here is giving you know a ton of credit to Clemson for that performance. I don't think Miami's any good. Either way, I mean, it's great performance from Clemson. It was dominant in every possible way. But are you really going to get bonus points there? So when you consider everything here, okay, if say Ohio State wins by a touchdown, say they win 38-31, okay? It's a good game, solid game. How far can you justify dropping Michigan? Can you justify dropping them behind a two-loss LSU? Can you justify dropping them behind a two-loss Tennessee? Can you justify dropping them behind a two-loss Alabama? No. The only team that you can justify dropping them below is potentially a one-loss USC and or a one-loss or undefeated TCU. So I think it remains a very real possibility that Georgia sits at number one, Ohio State sits at number two, 
TCU at either 13 and 0 or 12 and 1 sits at number 3. USC at 12 and 1 sits at number 4 with Michigan at 11 and 1 sitting at number 5. But in the event of USC potentially losing to Notre Dame or losing to Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game, I think you're going to find Michigan in the four spot where they will face off against Georgia and TCU will face off against Ohio State. Okay, next one here. Even if TCU loses its conference championship game, they will make the college football playoff. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. Because in order to move them out, and here's where I think a lot of people will have a freak out when it comes to that possibility. In order for you to move them out, you also must be able to make a strong argument for a team that needs to be moved in. Okay, so help me understand this. TCU loses in their conference championship game. They're sitting at 12-1. and Okay, of course, we're assuming right now that TCU beats Iowa State next week. But they're sitting at 12-1. and who has a better resume than TCU at 12 and one? Well, is Michigan or Ohio state at 11 and one who the loser of next week's game? Are they potentially better than TCU? Possibly. I could see, I could see that argument being made at 12 and one is, is a 10 and two Tennessee is a, you know, 10 and three LSU, assuming they lose to Georgia in the sec championship game is a 10 and two Alabama going to be over them is a is a 12 and 1 Clemson with not one win against a quality opponent with the exception of a potential win against North Carolina is that is that going to be enough to overtake a TCU team I don't think so so I I think TCU if they win this week they're in the college football playoff I feel fairly confident uh of that possibility now coming to fruition because of Tennessee's loss we didn't even mention the number one team in the country, the Georgia Bulldogs. Ugly performance, <laughs> to say the least, on the road at Kentucky. Give Kentucky's defense some credit. They made life difficult for Stetson Bennett. He finished, goodness, with just 116 yards to the year. But got to also give credit to Kenny McIntosh. He goes for a career-high 143, the most rushing yards in a game by a Georgia player since 2019. So Kenny McIntosh, well done. Usually, obviously, it's a running back by committee approach there for Georgia. But well done there in the victory, even though it was not one that you're going to be real thrilled about. How about who Georgia's playing next week? They'll take on the rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. Started the season one and three. One and three under Jeff Collins. He was let go. In comes Brent Key. They've now gone four and three in their last seven games. And they did so beautifully in the upset win against North Carolina. Of course, got in that 17 nothing hole. They completely shut down Drake May in that offense there in the second half. And they used what I thought was a very unconventional quarterback rotation with Tyson Pumachan and Zach Gibson kind of rotating those guys and, and doing some different things with them en route to the upset victory. Man, credit to Brent Key. I don't know if he'll get the job. I don't know if they'll remove the interim tag, but he certainly deserves consideration with how Georgia Tech has played down the stretch. Some people thought that there were going to be a lot of changes made in Iowa after the way they had played in the first few weeks of the season. Their offense had become a punchline. Well, guess what? They now have beaten Minnesota for the eighth straight year. Yes, the offenses were optional uh, in the performance this past weekend. We told you that 32 points 
I, I would take the under all day. Well, I said it should be 22 points. I think <laughs> it would have gone over the 22, but not by much. 13-10, Iowa gets it done. And they did so against a pretty dang good rushing performance from Mo Ibrahim. Ibrahim goes for 243 in the loss. So if you would have told me that Minnesota would rush for nearly 250, their best player would rush for nearly 250, and yet still they'd come up short in the game, I would have told you I, I doubt it. But here we are, rinse and repeat, Iowa now in firm control of their own destiny and with a win against 3-8 and eight, Nebraska, they officially punched their ticket to the Big Ten Championship game yet again. So don't listen to the haters, Iowa. You just keep winning ugly. Just hope that they keep divisions in place in the Big Ten longer because if you're in the East, you might not get to bowl eligibility. But since you're in the West, here you are with another chance to get to the Big Ten Championship game and finish regular season at 8-4. and four. I think as far as postseason play is concerned, there's nothing more exciting than the idea, than the idea of Vanderbilt getting to the postseason. It's unlikely. They have to knock off Tennessee this week, but Tennessee, if they're without Hendon Hooker, who knows? I don't think Joe Milton is that much of a draw. I think Joe Milton's a good player, but hey, Vandy's won two consecutive SEC games for the first time in quite a while, and they beat Florida at home for the first time since 1988, the year I was born. So got to give credit to Clark Lee. Got to give credit to Ray Davis, the transfer. He's starting to make a name for himself. Now that's three straight games in which he's gone over 100 yards rushing. So credit to Vanderbilt, man. What a great performance against the Florida Gators and pulling off what has been a very one-sided game for a while. But I've called Vanderbilt Florida before. This game's always weirdly close. I don't know why, but it always is. <laughs> Good win, Vandy. If you can get the win next week, you'll find a way to the postseason. Clark Lee's got something going there in Nashville. Not that they're ever going to be a threat in the East, but Clark Lee is starting to make Vanderbilt look like the Vanderbilt team that used to exist, say, 10, 12, 15 years ago, where they were just kind of dangerous. They're just a little dangerous. So a lot of credit to the staff there in Nashville for the changes and the adjustments that they've made. And then finally, because we don't know how many more of these we're going to have, Got to talk quickly about Bedlam. We're not going to do a Monday recap show and not hit Bedlam. What a weird game. <laughs> like, I mean, 28-0 in the blink of an eye, and then, you know, just kind of hang around the rest of the way. I mean, goodness gracious, it was just the strangest game. I mean, Spencer Sanders really didn't look anything like himself. Had the four picks, obviously. It was just not a clean performance from Oklahoma State whatsoever. And you look at Oklahoma State, man. What's happened? I mean, start 5-0. and You've since gone 2-4. and it's unrecognizable what this team's looked like in the last six weeks compared to the first five. They were clicking in the first five on all cylinders, but man, they have come back to earth in a big way. Oklahoma now is bowl eligible. Credit to them. Arkansas, Oklahoma's neighbor, is also now bowl eligible after Rocket Sanders goes for 232 and three touchdowns. I think he had like 215 in the first half, so clearly not much going there in the second half, but credit to Sam Pittman. 35-6 there at halftime over Ole Miss, and they cruised to victory 42-27. So got to give some credit to Oklahoma and Arkansas, a couple teams that punched their ticket to the postseason. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Wherever you're getting the show, it's on the ESPN's YouTube channel. If you're here with us via the podcast, we really appreciate you. Come back, check in with us again later in the week. I told you earlier in the show, Eli Manning will join the show tomorrow to help preview the Egg Bowl, which comes up 
here in just a couple days on Thanksgiving. For all of us here, Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a tremendous day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.